Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organize lecture days once per month, where attendees get a full day of talks from the UK's leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. Our podcast features in-depth interviews with our speakers, so you can learn more about their work. To keep updated on upcoming events and new lectures, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Dr. Sheldrake is a biologist and author of more than 85 scientific papers and 13 books. He is a leading researcher into anomalous phenomena and was named among the top 100 global thought leaders for 2013. Rupert studied biology and biochemistry at Cambridge University, where he earned his PhD, followed by a fellowship at Harvard, where he spent a year studying philosophy and history. Some of his books include The Sense of Being Stared At, The Science Delusion, and Morphic Resonance. This interview focuses on Rupert's most recent book, Science and Spiritual Practices, which was published in 2017. You can learn more about his work at www.sheldrake.org. Rupert will be the third and final speaker at our forthcoming Science and Spirituality event due to take place at the University of London on Sunday the 28th of October. You can get 10% off your ticket if you use the code PODCAST when registering. Enjoy the show. So Rupert, to get started, could you just tell me a bit more about your background and how you got into the work you're currently doing? Well, I'm a biologist. I started out studying biology at school and at Cambridge because I love plants and animals. Um, then I, did, I began to think the mechanistic theory of life was a bit too narrow and I studied philosophy at Harvard and history of science to try and get a bigger picture. Then I did a PhD at Cambridge in plant development, um, became a fellow of Clare College, did research there, taught there. Um, and then felt that academic science was indeed much too mechanistic, much too narrow. I wanted to see a bigger picture of biology. I had the idea of morphic resonance, the idea of memory and nature when I was working in Cambridge, but I couldn't really publish it or do anything with it then. It was too new an idea and too undeveloped. So I then went to India where I worked I was there for seven years. I worked five years in an agricultural institute on crop improvement, the International Crops Research Institute in Hyderabad. I spent um, two years in an ashram in South India, a Christian ashram run by Father B. Griffiths, who, who was an English Benedictine monk, who lived in the Indian style, wore orange robes and so on. It was a a kind of bringing together of the Indian and the Christian traditions that suited me very well. Um, while I was at Cambridge, when I first went to India, I was a, I'd become an atheist, but I was drawn back to taking spirituality more seriously through being exposed to India. And through Father Bede, found a way of linking this up with my own Christian heritage. Um, so that's one side of it. Then I came back to England. Um, I published my first book, A New Science of Life, which is about morphic resonance, uh, memory and nature. Then um, I've been working more or less um, 
independently since then, because if you do very radical research, it's hard to do it in a university. So I had many friends in the university system, but I've been funded independently, and I've done research on a whole range of phenomena, including morphic resonance, telepathy, and psychic phenomena in animals, which I summarized in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. Um, psychic phenomena in people, um, which I summarized in my book, The Sense of Being Stared At, which also includes telepathy and premonitions, precognition. Um, then uh, my main critique of the mechanistic materialist orthodoxy in science, which I think has become much too dogmatic and restrictive, is in my book The Science Delusion, 2012. And my most recent book is Science and Spiritual Practices, 2017, uh, which is about seven different spiritual practices for which there's now good scientific evidence that they work and have measurable effects. So at the moment, I, I work in a variety of areas, including the science-spirituality interface, um, research on unexplained powers of the human mind, research on morphic resonance, um, and the general philosophical framework of science, because I think we need to go beyond mechanistic materialism and what would the science of the future look like. 100%. Mm -hmm. And looking back over all those years of the work that you've done, what would you say, would you say there are any central threads that have united all of this work from, from start to finish? Any themes? Yeah, well, I mean, the main theme is to move from the orthodox scientific view that nature is mechanical, matter is unconscious, the universe is unconscious, and we're just mechanisms, to a view of the universe as alive, the whole of nature as alive, um, animals and plants as alive, and, um, and of uh, a, a world in which Consciousness is not just confined to a kind of small bubble inside human heads or animal heads, but is underlying the universe and pervading nature as well. So it's really a holistic, um, more animistic view of nature um, open to the spiritual realms. That's where I would like to, to my, that's where my work leads and what I'm most interested in and um, where I think actually our whole culture needs to go because the mechanistic materialist view is, leads to a dysfunctional relationship with nature as shown by climate change and the destruction of the environment and also to a deeply depressing worldview which results in mass-scale depression. Okay, and this, this split, this 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 uh, materialist worldview, where we see ourselves as fundamentally separate from nature, mm. what are the origins of this, and what what worldview are you trying to get out there? What how sh what what's a better way to look at the world psychologically and environmentally? Well, I mean, the origins of this split really are in the seventeenth century. We've had it for a long time. Um, in the Middle Ages, the um, the philosophy of the Middle Ages was very much influenced by Aristotle as re 
interpreted by St. Thomas Aquinas, who was one of the leading philosophers in the 13th century. And that started a, a kind of orthodoxy which was taught in the medieval universities like Oxford and Cambridge and Paris and Bologna. Um, and it gave the view of nature as alive, animals and plants as beings with souls. That's why animals are called animals, because the Latin word is anima, meaning soul. Uh, the earth was a living organism, the whole universe is alive. The stars with their own intelligence and living beings with their own intelligence. That was the world view in which the medieval view of God fitted. God was the God of a living world and was within nature and beyond nature. And the this astonishing synthesis where there was no conflict really between science and spirituality um, is what underlay the building of the great Gothic cathedrals, cathedrals like Lincoln and Chartres and Salisbury and Westminster Abbey and Christ Church Dublin and, and so on. The, the, these great medieval buildings um, were built uh, in a world where they thought that nature was alive, that God pervaded nature, that humans were related to other living things and also to God. And they brought together the synthesis of technology. The architecture is astonishing, considering they only had a very small population and ropes and pulleys and horse-drawn carts and so on. It's astonishing they were able to build all these cathedrals um, and parish churches. Um, and that worldview, um, which was a kind of synthesis, was really destroyed through two revolutionary movements. First, the Protestant Reformation, which rejected this um, um, Catholic theological orthodoxy um, and regarded the main focus as an interplay between God and humans. Nature was more or less, at best, a kind of neutral backdrop. God was sort of withdrawn from nature. And then in the mechanistic revolution in the 17th century, God was totally withdrawn from nature in mechanistic science, so the whole universe became an unconscious machine, um, just working in accordance with mathematical laws mechanically. Animals and plants became machines, the human body became a machine. So there was a radical split. They still had God for Descartes, who was the main architect of, of this split. Um, God still existed. God and angels and human minds were still spiritual realities, but this spiritual world was totally separate from nature. It was non-material, immaterial, um, not in space and time. Uh, and so it really gave two worlds. The world that science dealt with, the whole universe and all nature, mechanical, unconscious, um, with no purpose or direction of its own. And the other world, God, angels and human minds, separate from nature. So humans were separate from all other animals which were mere machines, hence they could be factory farmed and genetically engineered and become modified through biotechnology, all these engineering metaphors. And um, humans were different. Then, in the 19th century, the, there was a, a lot of people said, well, we don't like this split. We, don't, we think two principles are bad. We ought just to have one principle. And let's just say the only reality is matter. 
no such thing as spirit. You can't see it. You can't measure it. Um, it doesn't fit into science. So science is the only reality. The material universe is the only reality. No such thing as God and angels. And the human mind's nothing but the activity of the brain. So that really is the, the materi scientific materialism, which is a 19th century philosophy. Um, and that then became the dominant philosophy of the whole of the natural sciences. It's essentially atheistic because there's no room for God in that kind of universe. And so from that point of view, um, God is at best um, a kind of poetic idea in human minds and hence in human brains, but certainly not out there in any sense. And the only people who believe that are people who are deluded, stupid, childish or primitive. Um, and so that is the kind of Richard Dawkins type atheist worldview. Um, and because minds are nothing but brains, then they can't have any influence at a distance except through words and writing and stuff, normal means. Therefore, psychic phenomena like telepathy are impossible and illusory and make-believe. And that's why the Dawkinses of this world um, support skeptic organizations which deny that these phenomena can possibly happen. So that's how we've got to the, the present worldview, and I think it's extremely um, dysfunctional. It's incredibly depressing for people who believe it. If you think you're nothing but an isolated consciousness inside a brain, when you die, that's it. Your brain just decays. The universe is purposeless. There's no overall purpose to anything. Uh, the whole of nature is unconscious. Um, that it's a very, very depressing worldview, and that, as I said, is why I think depression is the endemic mental disorder of modern industrial secular societies. So instead, um, what I think we need to do is recover a sense that nature really is alive. The universe is a living organism, not a machine. The earth is alive, Gaia. Animals and plants are truly alive. Um, our minds are much more extensive than our brains, and that's why we get psychic phenomena like the sense of being stared at and telepathy. And underlying the whole universe, there is a greater consciousness, or lots of greater consciousnesses than our own, but ultimately um, a, a conscious source of all things, which traditionally in the West is called God, in, in Hinduism called Brahman, you know, in Islam, Allah are different names. Some people prefer to just say the All or the Supreme Reality. But at any rate, what makes all these religions different from mechanistic materialism is that the ultimate reality is conscious, whereas for mechanistic materialism, the ultimate reality is just matter. It's unconscious. And if we view nature as fundamentally conscious, then we have to respect it more and we have to treat it better and we have to... Yes, and we have a much better relationship with it. And many people do have, um, in moments of mystical experience, which is surprisingly common, uh, a sense of being connected with nature, sometimes at a beautiful sunset or on a mountain or just when walking in the country or looking at the sea, the sea or a river or something. People feel, um, or with a tree or with animals, uh, people feel that their own life is part of something much greater than their own. It's a, this kind of mystical sense of connection. 
very often a sense of connection with the whole of nature. And this is usually treated as if it's a kind of poetic feeling that's okay in leisure hours but doesn't really relate to the way the world really is. It's a kind of romantic, private, subjective experience. But I think it's actually telling us something profound about the way the world really is. It's giving us a direct insight into the nature of nature. 100%. I actually went for a walk in Hampstead Heath before I came here today, and I, f I feel like on a scale of 1 to 10, I feel two points better than, than I've felt before. So there's definitely something to it. Um, I, I want to ask you, uh, Rupert, can you tell me about going from you were originally a Christian and then you became an atheist mm. and then you became a Christian again. Can mm. you tell me about what that was like to go from being atheist to going back into Christianity and was that difficult? Did you have doubts along the way and what was that process like for you? Well, it, was, um, it wasn't a sudden conversion experience. Um, I got interested in um, the nature of consciousness first. And that was partly through spontaneous mystical type experiences, sense of connection with a great, something greater than myself. Partly through psychedelics, which I first took LSD around, I think, 1970. And that, for me, was an, an amazing revelation of a much greater uh, nature of mind than any, anyone had ever told me about in my physiology lectures at Cambridge. Um, so where it was all about sort of just computer-like processing of stimuli, etc., it was clear there was a lot more going on in minds than that. Um, and then that made me interested in exploring consciousness without drugs as I started doing transcendental meditation and yoga. And then um, I travelled in India and, and um, was very drawn to Eastern cultures. So then I got this job in India and lived there. And to start with, I was primarily drawn to the Hindu tradition. I went to ashrams, temples, discourses by gurus and so on. And um, I also had a Sufi teacher for a while. I did a Sufi form of meditation. But I began to realize that however much I tried, I was much more embedded in the Christian tradition than I thought. This came home to me in a conversation with one of my Indian colleagues. He was a PhD, he was a plant breeder, he was a Brahmin, a Hindu. And he one day, we, after work, we were talking and he said, well, asked me why I did this work. And I said, because I wanted to help poor people who, the poor farmers, our institute was working for the poorest farmers in Africa and India. Um, who don't have irrigation and therefore couldn't grow these improved varieties of wheat and rice. Uh, basically subsistence farmers and we were trying to improve the agricultural um, possibilities. So I said I w it was about helping people and I was very motivated to do that, which I was. And I loved going into villages and, and seeing what we could do to help. And he then said, you know, but they, if these poor people are poor people, that is their problem. It is not your problem. That is their karma. That is their past life that has made them like that. It is not your problem. Your problem is to build your own career and seek liberation from the cycles of death and rebirth. 
And that basically is the Hindu and the Buddhist attitude that the point of the spiritual life is just to undergo a kind of vertical takeoff from um, the hopeless world we live in of reincarnation, samsara, suffering, just goes on life after life of various forms of suffering and problems. Uh, it's all rather hopeless. The world's getting worse. Um, there's no such thing as progress. The world's heading downhill um, fast. And uh, it's about this vertical takeoff. Then I realized the, the fact that I thought that actually the spiritual life's not just about individual liberation, it's about helping others, it's about the community, is utterly fundamental to the Christian and the Islamic and the Jewish view. It's an Abrahamic, it's common to all the Abrahamic religions. And that I, I actually valued the, this tradition of helping others. And so I started praying the Lord's Prayer as well as meditating. And um, then started going to church again. I went to the Anglican church in, in Secunderabad, near where I lived. And I really enjoyed the familiarity of that. But I found the um, Christian tradition rather lacking in the mystical, the rather more juicy mystical insights that Hinduism has. And then I met Father B. Griffiths, who introduced me to the Christian mystical tradition. And I became aware there was a lot more to it than I'd known. And no one had ever told me about St. Thomas Aquinas or St. Bonaventure or St. Teresa of Avila or Dionysus the Areopagite or Origen or the, these great philosophers and, and the Meister Eckhart. And I realized there was a, a, a much greater depth than I'd ever known about before and felt much more at home in, in the Christian tradition. And I was confirmed in the Church of South India. Um, I refused to get confirmed at school because I was a, a quite youthful atheist. You know, when I was 14 or so, I refused and was rather rebellious. Um, and then when I came back to England, I found that I really appreciated the Anglican tradition which I'd been brought up in. And enormously appreciate the fact we have these magnificent cathedrals and wonderful music going on in them, magnificent services and um, dignified rituals and um, a sense of community and people who are committed to helping others. And all this seemed to me thoroughly good. And I was pleased to reconnect with the Christian tradition. And for me, it wasn't principally about here's a set of beliefs, you've got to tick all these boxes and sign up to them um, uh, before you do anything. For me, it was a matter of experience, you know, enjoying the rituals, the chanting. Um, and as I describe in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, um, for example, rediscovering the tradition of pilgrimage. Um, I'm a patron of the British Pilgrimage Trust, which is reopening the old footpath pilgrimage routes in England. And there are comparable movements going on in Ireland and Wales and Scotland and indeed all over Europe. Um, there's a tremendous growth of pilgrimage at the moment. Okay. I remember actually reading in your book, uh, you asked a an Indian guru about it and he said, you're born of a 
Christian all paths lead to God yes you're born in a Christian family so follow, follow that way or something along those lines well exactly well you see that seemed to me that was a, a new thought for me because I suffered from a very widespread syndrome which I call the ABC syndrome anything but Christian I mean most people who go on the spiritual quest you know a bit of sort of mindfulness meditation uh, yoga uh, shamanic drumming ayahuasca ceremonies um, as long as it's not Christian you know, Native American Australian Aboriginal didgeridoos uh, you know all that's absolutely fine uh, Buddhist chants um, um, but uh, the, the whole thing leaves this huge empty hollow scent where it's been hollowed out where the entire Christian part is simply airbrushed out of the picture yeah. um, and I was like that too and then when he when he said that, I realised that actually I just deliberately blinded myself to my own tradition. And I mean, there are some people who've had terrible experiences of Christianity, child abuse, dogmatic and repressive Puritanism, etc., etc. Um, and I can see why um, the, they have a reaction against it. I didn't have any of those. I mean, I was I had no bad experiences. I just thought that through being a scientist, uh, like many scientists, I'd sort of risen above not just Christianity but all religion, seeing it from a higher point of view of supreme reason and understanding that we've understood and seen through all these belief systems. So there's a kind of arrogance involved in the kind of common or garden atheism. Um, and as I say, for some people, there may be insuperable barriers to reconnecting with their own tradition. But for those who don't have any deep personal trauma, I think it makes more sense to connect with one's own tradition. And you know, I advise Muslim friends who've been alienated from Islam that the best path for would be to reconnect with Islam, preferably with moderate Sufi type mystical Islam. Or um, you know, what, uh, so it's not. I'm not saying everyone ought to become a Christian, the whole world should be converted to Christianity, but most atheists, agnostics and non-religious people come from Christian backgrounds. There's no religion that so um, effectively creates atheists and um, Christianity. In fact, I think atheism is best seen as a kind of uh, Christian heresy. It's really interesting. It actually reminds me, I uh I've travelled to Asia, I've travelled to South Africa, I've been over in South America and the States as well. But the best holiday I've been on was a road trip around around Ireland and seeing all the sites that were local to me. That's where I find most meaning and most find mm. it most interesting. So mm. it's always the the simplest option is always the last place you look, but that's always where not where the answer is, but that's where you find whatever it is, you know. Well I think returning to our roots, I think even if one rejects one's own cultural and religious and ancestral roots one has to acknowledge them not acknowledging them and, and just trying to uh, amputate them or is it leaves one incomplete and cut off and and I think this, uh, it's it's very helpful to reconnect with the places too I mean here in England I've been on a number of pilgrimages to holy places in England and I find that because I'm English a really powerful way of reconnecting um, I mean, I'm not a chauvinist about this. I've been on pilgrimages in India and on, 
on the continent and and um, in Ireland too. And so I think that this is um, something that is we can do anywhere. Actually, I think pilgrimage is one of the best ways of reconnecting because you literally connect with the land through walking through it. It's, it's better done on foot, actually. It works best when you're walking um, because you're in nature walking on footpaths through the countryside. So it involves that connection with nature and connection with history and the memory of the place and the cultural basis of it. And um, I think it's one reason that it's become so popular. I mean, the, the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in Spain was revived in the 1980s. And when they got the infrastructure in place, in 1987, about a 1,000 people walked there. And last year, it was 300,000. I mean, this is a massive growth. And there's, it's helped to um, encourage people all over Europe to reopen the pilgrimages. And there are, there, in, in Ireland, there's about 12 different old routes that have been reopened as footpath pilgrimages. There are several in Scotland. Um, and Wales and the, the, a lot of these the, the British ones are all on the British Pilgrimage website the, the British is called BritishPilgrimage.org um, and there are as I say comparable things in Ireland and Scotland with websites where you can actually find out about these routes Okay uh, So now, now Rupert I want to talk about um whether or not we're going through a spiritual evolution in the planet at the minute. I think it was Martin Luther King that said, we have guided missiles and misguided men, and it's almost like our moral, our moral evolution hasn't caught up with our technological evolution, and this is getting us into a lot of trouble, and potentially could be very destructive. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think we're undergoing, uh, there, I think there's a rather amazing spiritual revival going on at the moment. Um, it's largely happening outside organized religion. Um, but there's, we now have the access to practically all the world's spiritual traditions. Um, you know, when I was a child, I, that wasn't the case. Um, you know, I'd never heard of yoga or meditation or any of those things and now there are 18 million Americans do meditation there's yoga everywhere in, even in small towns there are people teaching yoga and again that certainly wasn't the case in England before um, so there are now there are people doing ayahuasca ceremonies again no, I, I didn't hear of ayahuasca till I was in my 30s and 40s I mean it was a um, but nowadays, lots of teenagers have heard about it. and um, So we've now got access to all these different traditions. There, is, there are people teaching the very essence of chanting, which is present in all religious traditions. Uh, indeed, that's one of the things my wife, Jill Purse, does. She re-pioneered the group power of group chanting and gives workshops on chanting. And they're open to everyone, whatever their religious background or belief or non-belief. Um, so I think one of the things is that with access to all these practices, which is what I'm writing about in my book, 
These practices have been studied scientifically and shown to have measurable effects um, and generally speaking make people happier, healthier and live longer. The corollary of that is that not doing these things makes you unhappier, unhealthier and live shorter. Uh, in fact, I think militant atheism should come with a health warning. Because uh, practicing atheists who give up all religious practices, I mean, the bonus for them is they think that it proves they're smart. So there's a certain smug self-satisfaction comes from that. But not going on pilgrimages, not going to holy places, not singing with members of your community, not celebrating festivals, um, you know, not praying, um, all these things, uh, I think are an impoverishment, not an enrichment of people's lives. So um, I think that rediscovering these practices is what's happening now. And religions themselves are undergoing an evolution because all of them tended to live in their own separate bubbles before, and now they're exposed to each other. And some forms of this evolution are not very attractive, like uh, fundamentalist Islam. It's a new invention. Traditional Muslims were not fundamentalist. And fundamentalist Christianity is a 20th century American invention. People simply weren't like that before. Um, so that's a kind of rather unhelpful form of development. There are also uh, extraordinary uh, evolutionary developments within Christianity like the Pentecostalist or Charismatic movement. There's about 580 million Charismatic or Pentecostalist Christians worldwide. And this movement started in the beginning of the 20th century in Los Angeles with the rediscovery of speaking in tongues and gifts of the spirit and spiritual healing. I mean, it's a very active, experience-based form of Christianity. It's not just going to a parish church and singing hymns and listening to a sermon. It's, a, it's very engaging, and that's why it's so attractive. And most of the converts to this are in South America and Asia. And there's huge churches now of this kind in Korea and the Philippines and, and in Brazil and so on. Um, and they also include, at least the South American ones, sort of gospel-type singing and enormously powerful music. And in Africa, Christianity has undergone this remarkable evolutionary development as it's become Africanized with incredibly engaging singing, which pioneered really by black people in the United States who, who um, had this African tradition, and that gave us jazz and, and, and gospel and so on. Um, so I think there are all these movements, and then the way that yoga and meditation are evolving. I mean, they're very different now from the way they were taught in India 50 or 100 years ago. There's hundreds of schools of yoga, and, and they've become adapted to the West, and so has meditation. Uh, these are all evolutionary developments. So I think what we're seeing now is a very rapid evolution of spiritual practices and, and religious forms. 100%. And the subtitle of your book is Reconnecting Through Direct Experiences. I'd be curious to ask, which experiences over the course of your lifetime have been most direct for you, where you felt like the strongest connection to whatever that is? Well, I mean, all the ones that I, I the seven practices I discuss in my book, and um, 
gratitude is one and I've found that when I practice gratitude think of all the things I'm grateful for and thank others and thank nature and thank God for the world the, the life I have I feel much happier much more connected um, connecting with nature is another one connecting with the more than human world and that for me is a powerful one because I've always had this strong sense of connection with the natural world can, can I just is that why you've you live beside Hampstead Heath? Well, it's certainly well. It's an enormous bonus living right next to Hampstead Heath, where I can walk there almost every day and have this daily dose of being uh, with trees and flowers and plants and and the heath, uh, being outdoors. Um, relating to plants, I've always had a strong connection with plants and trees and flowers. I love looking at flowers whenever I have. A free afternoon I go to Kew Gardens and um, just love really looking at flowers um, and I find that the beauty of the flowers takes me into a, another space and a, a sense of connection with something much greater than myself. Meditation, um, I meditate every day and um, sometimes, I mean a lot of it's sort of thoughts going through one's mind and letting go of them which is involves letting the sort of compost in this meditational space but sometimes there are a sense of tremendous peace and connection with, with a greater consciousness um, rituals I find participating in rituals particularly powerful and I really like um, the choral evensong which is done in all our cathedrals every day and here's this rather simple incredibly beautiful evening ritual which is I find moves me into a completely different space and, and I emerge feeling peaceful connected um, and then um, pilgrimage I've already talked about that is a, a, I find a very connective and powerful experience and I do at least one pilgrimage a year um, with my godson um, and usually more um, in fact I'm doing one tomorrow with one of my sons uh, to Wells Cathedral we'll walk several miles um, it's a short pilgrimage through woods and meadows on footpaths to Wells Cathedral and tomorrow's the feast of St Michael and all angels and there'll be I'm pretty sure a spectacular service there. It's at 5.15. Um, it's a festal Eucharist, so it's a special, and the choir, they, they have a marvellous choir, choir will be singing, the cathedral will be echoing to this beautiful song. And in some Anglican cathedrals for the festivals, I don't know about Wells, uh, but at Westminster Abbey, for example, tomorrow for St. Michael and All Angels, they'll have incense and spectacular music and twelve priests in golden robes I mean it just it's really spectacular moving engaging rituals that um, um, and then you come out of Westminster Abbey and there's a peal of twelve bells ringing to celebrate this great festival all this is free and most people don't realize it's going on in Britain at all but uh, um, um, so that's another way I find uh, is a powerful way of connecting. So all of these 
seven practices that I discuss in my book, Things I Do Myself. And so I, don't, I wouldn't write about them unless I did. Yeah, 100%. I, I wanted to ask you as well, Rupert, and when I was researching for this interview, I came across some of the trialogues you did with uh, Terence McKenna and mm. Ralph Abraham. Mm. Could you maybe tell us about your friendship with Terence McKenna and maybe the impact he has on you as a, as a person as well? I first met Terence in 1982 when I was um, on my first visit to California, soon after my book, A New Science of Life, had come out. It was published in America in California, so I'd gone there for the book launch. And a friend said, there's this guy you must meet, Terence McKenna. So he arranged a meeting, and I took a bus, and I met Terence um, as arranged. And Ralph Abraham, the chaos mathematician, was staying with him for a few days. So he took me to his house, and there was Ralph. And they'd been having these conversations for several years. They were about consciousness, psychedelic experience, mathematical modeling, chaos theory. Um, and Terence's mind was incredibly wide-ranging. And so I just slipped straight into this. We sat down, we, d we were talking for almost 24 hours, and it was just incredibly exciting, the most exciting conversation I think I'd ever had. And um, so much overlap, and yet we all had completely different perspectives. So we then made a point of meeting at least once a year and spending several days together where we could just talk. It was like a kind of private think tank. I tr tried out all my new ideas on them and they did the same. Um, and so uh, it was a very um, wonderful friendship. That, um, and then after we'd been doing this for about 10 years, um, a friend at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, said, you know, you guys, these conversations are so fascinating. Why don't you do them in public? So she arranged this public program, which was then filmed and recorded. That was, I think, around 1990, 1991 or two. I've forgotten exactly when. Um, and thereafter, we met at least once a year, but we recorded our dialogues, which is why there's something like 30 or 40 of these recordings. Some of them, mostly they weren't filmed, they were just taped. Um, and actually I'd forgotten about all these recordings, but um, a few years ago Ralph was clearing out his garage in Santa Cruz, California and discovered this box of cassettes and realized there was this complete set of recordings and a Terence fan digitized them and put them online. They're now all on my own website. Um, and we also did two books based on these trialogues, transcripts of the trialogues, um, Chaos, Creativity and Cosmic Consciousness and The Evolutionary Mind. Then Terence sadly got brain cancer um, in 1999 and he died in the year 2000, so our trialogues came to an end. Um, Ralph and I are still good friends and we meet most years. Um, and we've tried continuing the trilogues with other people to, you know, to replace Terence, but we've tried with about eight or nine other people we thought were promising. Because um, Ralph, being a mathematician, thought that the um, magic of this was because there were three people involved. Uh, we now realize that it's not just mathematical, <laughs> that it was 
the unique I mean Terence was a uniquely creative person with an extraordinary bardic gift as well as uh, being a kind of prophetic visionary of the whole psychedelic realm um, so anyway Terence uh, is no more sadly and but the remarkable thing is that his influence lives on because many of his talks and also our trialogues are on the internet and over the years hundreds of thousands maybe millions of people have listened to them and I think been inspired by them and because he was a utterly engaging and inspiring figure he really was mm. he really was so just a couple more questions now Rupert because I know, I know you've got to get going uh, in I think was it 2013 you had a TED talk yes and it, it got banned um, my question is even in an organi organization like TED that's all about the free flow of ideas and spreading ideas mm. it's almost like a dogmatic element crept in that says this doesn't fit with our with our rules or whatever and mm. do you think dogma it, w w I, I want to ask why does it so easily creep into human organizations and How can, like in your own work, how have you managed to not be dogmatic and keep an open mind and keep open? Because it seems like it's almost impossible, especially even even in the scientific field. Well, I think it's especially in the scientific field, actually. Um, you see, if you think about dogmas in religion, I mean, each religion has its own doctrines. Um, but say someone came across with a sort of very strong statement of Catholic dogmas, then most people wouldn't be that upset because they could get an Anglican who says, well, I'm a Christian, don't believe that. I, we have a different view, and they could get a Muslim or a Hindu and, or a Buddhist. And so within the field of religion, there's a pluralism. And if anyone comes across too shrilly dogmatic, then you can easily counteract it by finding someone from another religion who doesn't take that view. Um, it doesn't mean it's unreligious to have the dogma or to challenge the dogma. You can be religious in many different ways or spiritual in many different ways. The problem with science is that it doesn't have any pluralism. When it grew up in the 17th century, the foundational story of science is about the opposition of the church to Galileo's uh, you know, ideas. And He's treated as a kind of martyr. Well, he wasn't a martyr. He was put under a fairly mild form of house arrest because he was very rude to the inquisitors. <laughs> I mean, he could easily have got off if he hadn't been so confrontational. It, it, it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, but in the, in the mythology of science, it was this huge conflict, you know, science versus dogma, and, and religion got labeled as a dogma, and science is free thinking and stuff. But what they did was internalized the sort of Catholic idea there's one true science and we're it. And of course it changes from time to time. Um, but at any given time, scientists like to imagine that they know the truth. And there's no rival kind of science. The same kind is taught in every university and every school all over the world. It's not as if Indian scientists and Indian science is taught differently in India with lots of yoga and Ayurveda and stuff. If you go to chemistry, physics, or biology courses in India, they're just the same as here, basically. And the same in China and South America. 
Um, so, unfortunately, um, this means that if anyone says anything that's considered heretical by defenders of scientific orthodoxy, they can denounce those who are saying it as heretical and pseudo-scientific or non-scientific. If you don't say what we say, it's not science. Whereas, as I say, if somebody says something about Catholic doctrine and someone says, they can't say if you don't say what we say, it's not religion, because you can find Buddhists and Muslims and Sufis and all sorts of people who say different things. Um, so there's this extraordinary narrow intolerance within science and a very narrow definition of what's orthodox and almost any um, idea that challenges the orthodoxy in science is labelled heretical. I mean, I'm a regular church-going Anglican. I never hear the word heretical in the context of Anglican Christianity today. Um, but, you know, you don't have to be in any scientific institution or read any scientific publication or popular science magazine like New Scientist to come across the use of the word heretical quite frequently. And I've been branded, you know, one of the sort of number one heretic. So when I gave my TED talk, a couple of militant atheists in America, P.Z. Myers and um, who was the other one? Um, Jerry Coyne. Um, denounced the TED organization for providing a platform for heresy and pseudoscience. And the TED people who don't know anything about science were just scared. They thought uh, they said to them, you'll damage your brand, your whole reputation's ruined, you've allowed this charlatan to speak, you know. this." So they panicked, and they tried to ban my talk. And of course, they couldn't panic, because you can't ban anything on the internet now. It's all over the internet. Um, but, you see, if they they didn't have sufficient confidence to resist this, because when people say, we speak for science, the idea that a few individuals could speak for the whole of science is as absurd as saying, you know, say a Roman Catholic priest saying, I speak for all religion rather than just my kind, or say that if the Dalai, the Dalai he wouldn't do it, but the Dalai Lama wouldn't stand up there, I speak for all religion. He would never dream of doing that. But within the world of science, someone like Richard Dawkins, who was Title, his title at Oxford was Professor of the Public Understanding of Science, can speak about the public understanding of science, which for him is mechanistic materialism, militant atheism, uh, a kind of dogmatically molecular theory of evolution, and so on. So I think the problem is actually built into the uh, totalitarian mindset of, uh, of science. And a scientist, if you discuss it with them, of course they have to agree that science changes. At one time there wasn't an evolutionary theory, now there is. At one time there wasn't quantum theory, now there is. So science changes. And what I try to say is, well, it's changing again, and opening up our understanding of consciousness to include psychic phenomena and spiritual phenomena is the next change that's on the, it's already happening. But they, they think that what they've got now is like the ultimate, almost the ultimate final statement with only the details uh, that need filling in, more genome sequencing, more molecular biology, etc., more brain scans. Um, but uh, a failure to see that there could be something radically inadequate with existing science. And so one of the things I think would be much healthier is to have a more pluralistic science 
effectively we have that in medicine. We've got the official kind, which is mechanistic medicine, which is funded by the Medical Research Council using our money. But there's already all these other systems, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, naturopathy, homeopathy, you know, acupuncture, osteopaths. I mean, there's hundreds of medical systems. Um, but they're all excluded from official medicine and largely excluded from the National Health Service because they say, oh, those aren't the real ones. We've got the real one. Whereas I think if the NHS was much more pluralistic and included uh, a lot of its other approaches, it might be much more effective and it would certainly be much cheaper. And um, But this doesn't happen, except in a few marginal cases. Um, because of this idea we know the truth, this dogmatic totalitarian mentality that's so common in science and in people who believe in the religion of science, scientism. It's ironic that the TED, I looked today, it's got one and a half million views, so they've had the opposite effect. Probably. Oh, they've had the opposite, that's just one website. It's on, if you add up the others, it's on lots of others as well. It, it's well over four million, it's closer to five million. So you must have, because of the, the, the line of work you're in and the subjects that you're tackling with your research, you must have come up against some amount of uh, criticism and I would say negative feedback over the years from doing this. And has that has that been difficult? Has that been like, have there been any moments where it's been really hard to, to bear that? And how have you kind of kept going, kept going in spite of it? Well, I mean, the criticisms I get are often um, extremely unfair. I mean, they're not based on well-informed re reason. They're, they're extremely, they're personally abusive. But I don't, although they're personal abuse, I, I don't take them particularly personally. The people who do this are dogmatic believers in the, the materialist worldview, and they think they know the truth. They're kind of evangelical crusaders for a worldview they really deeply believe in. And anyone who disagrees with them just must be wrong. And the fact that I'm a scientist means that how could a scientist be so wrong? Um, it means I must be a pseudo-scientist or a charlatan or a fake or a fraud. I can't be a real scientist and disagree with them. So then they have to attack me by saying I'm a pseudo-scientist, charlatan, fake, fraud, etc. And it's what I found is it's almost impossible to argue with people like that because they're simply not interested in the evidence. For example, the, the, these so-called skeptics, uh, dogmatic believers in materialism, have taken over my biography page on Wikipedia. In fact, they've taken over whole areas of Wikipedia. Anything to do with psychic phenomena, alternative medicine, biographies of people they disapprove of, like me, They've captured them. They have teams of editors who go in and just take them over. And they distort them horribly. In Wikipedia, there is a certain amount of pushback from more reasonable people, but they're usually quickly disqualified or banned from editing by these so-called skeptics. But they have their own Wikipedia uh, called Rational Wiki, uh, which is completely unadulterated um, ground for people of this kind. What I've learned is that these so-called skeptics, these dogmatic materialists, 
um, are very committed to their worldview. Some of them are even fanatical, and they they have a lot of trolls online who, uh, you know, anything that mine that appears online where there's a comments page, is going to get these trolls. And you, you could write the script. I could write the script myself. You know, why have you allowed this? Uh, this charlatan on your program, he's, you know, it's pseudoscience, it's total rubbish and bullshit and that kind of thing, and, you know, what we need is science and reason. And and then they often quote Rational Wiki, you know, he's never published any scientific papers and stuff. You know, I published 85 and so it doesn't matter, they just say this, it's not true. Um, but this is a kind of truth-free zone, this, this dogmatic... Um, scientism um, and ironically there are people who claim to believe in science and reason and they're some of the most unscientific and irrational people I've come across um, so one has to see that this is a, a kind of these are people who've been converted to a kind of fanatical crusading movement that gives them a sense of purpose identity and certainty I think fundamentalists of all kinds including scientific fundamentalists, um, are people who need certainty. Um, and so it's very important for their identity um, to have this point of view. But they're not a majority of scientists, and um, a lot of people think that they speak for the whole scientific community. They don't. Uh, many of them aren't scientists in the first place. And there are some who are scientists who speak like that, like Richard Dawkins, most obviously, and these American ones who attack my TED talk, Jerry Coyne and P.Z. Myers. Um, but the majority of people in the scientific community are, are, are not like that, uh, although they often keep quiet if they differ from that point of view because they think they might get attacked. You keep quiet out of being afraid of attack. A recent survey of scientists in Britain, Germany and France, scientists, engineers and doctors showed that about 25% are atheists, another 20% are agnostics or non-religious, so 45% are non-religious, and about 45% are spiritual or religious, they're either practicing religious, spiritual but not religious, or not what they call non-practicing religious, in other words, they still think in terms of a kind of generally religious or spiritual perspective. Um, so the numbers of non-religious and spiritual oblique religious are about the same in the scientific communities. It's about half and half. And actual card-carrying atheists are only about a quarter of the whole population. But most people within the scientific and medical community imagine that almost all their colleagues are Dawkins-type atheists. That's just not true. Um, and most people outside the scientific world imagine that most scientists are dogmatic atheists. And even if we, and that's when we look at Britain, France and Germany, but when you look at India, for example, which has more scientists, far more scientists than we do here in Britain, um, when I worked in India as a scientist, it was very clear that the number of fully card-carrying believers in crusading materialism and atheism in Indian science is almost zero. And the vast majority of Indian scientists, when they go home after work, are fairly conventional Hindus or Muslims or Sikhs or Buddhists or 
Parsis or whatever, um, that they're not believers in a scientific worldview. And the majority of young scientists in the world today are not European or American, they're Asian, they're Korean, Chinese, Indian, or from South America. None of these people have a cultural bias in favour of materialism and atheism. So if you actually took a poll of the entire scientific community, especially among the younger ones, atheists would be in actually quite a small minority. Yeah. Uh, the bias of it, would you say, it's a, it's, a, it's a need for certainty? I think it's a need for certainty, yes. And they think science provides that. And um, the personal payoff, as I said, is, is the feeling that if you believe in this, it proves you're smart. You've got good critical thinking skills. You're a free thinker. You've seen through dogma. And you're smarter than everyone else. And all these people who believe in religion and stuff are just believing childish fairy tales. And you've risen above all that. And you've looked down from a high pinnacle of intellectual superiority with a, a slightly sneering look on your face uh, at, at the, the, you know, all these poor people who are still deluded. And I mean, that's the kind of payoff, personally, this feeling that they flatter themselves, they're smarter than everyone else. Yeah, but there's a big price to pay for that as well. There's a very big price to pay for it, including uh, proneness to depression, um, a terrible feeling that, you know, life may not have much meaning, and, and so on. Um, so people can deal with this in various ways. And of course, some atheists uh, um, do have a mystical sense. Quite an increasing number of atheists actually meditate now, like Susan Blackmore um, or Sam Harris. And what's most interesting is that many atheists see the inadequacy of this point of view. And so they're reintroducing spirituality into their lives. There's even an atheist church, the Sunday Assembly. Um, so um, the, the, the more thoughtful ones are actually recognizing the need for spirituality. They just don't want it to be called religion. Um, but in part, that's a question of naming things. In part, it's a question of having prejudices and stuff. But what's so interesting and why um, one reason I wrote my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, is because um, the spiritual practice uh, goes far beyond the, the, the confines of particular religions and, and can include many people who think of themselves as non-religious. 100%. Well, so it's all very inclusive. Yeah. Well, Rupert, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time, and I'm really looking forward to your talk with us on the 28th of October. Before we, before we go, have you got any asks of the audience, anything you want people to look at online or any calls to action? Well, uh, take a look at my website, sheldrake.org. There's a lot of um, material there. There's lots of dialogues, um, podcasts, articles. All my scientific papers are there in, in, you know, from peer-reviewed journals in open access format. And then uh, if anyone wants to know more then reading books is the best way um, the material on science and spiritual practices is in that book and my overall look at the whole scientific world and uh, the dogmas of science and how we could go beyond them I mean it's not a negative book in the sense it's called the subtitle is freeing the spirit of inquiry um, I think that these dogmas are restricting scientific inquiry and I think the sciences will be regenerated 
and become much more exciting and productive when they go beyond these dogmas. So I see this as um, opening, uh, challenging these dogmas opens ways forward for the sciences. And that's in my book, The Science Delusion. Okay, well, Rupert, thanks so much, and we'll see you on the 28th of October. Good. Looking forward to it, Neil. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget that you can win a three-month pass worth £150 to the Weekend University if you subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you're interested in keeping up to date with new psychology lectures and upcoming events, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com.